Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I was thinking about roadblocks, and I don't like them, and I bet you don't either. They are problematic in every area of life. But, 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 I should say, the barricades and the roadblocks might become building blocks for something amazing. And if we trust God in every area of our life, we could be surprised, because that's the way God works often, is through suffering and difficulty and trial, and sometimes they come in the form of roadblocks and barricades. Now, here to talk with me about that is, I'm so glad to have Roger, Dr. Roger Parrott with me. He's the president of Bellhaven University, who, by the way, was named among the 10 most visionary education leaders of 2021 by Education Magazine, and he's one of the longest-serving college presidents in America. He, uh, Dr. Parrott is the fountain of knowledge for Christian parents and business leaders alike. Glad to have him back on the show. Hello, Roger. It's great to be with you again, Bill. And nobody likes roadblocks. Everybody no. hates them. No. But we all got that in common. That's where we start. <laughs> and, you, and you have not lost an ounce of enthusiasm since last time you were on. I love that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because, uh, especially if you run a university, but if you're a dad like I am as well, roadblocks are just part of our life. And yeah. um, I think uh, probably as we get older, we learn how to deal with them better. But uh, there are a lot of bumps and bruises along the way before we get there. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm glad it's a topic we can talk about a little bit today. That's yeah. terrific. Why are we so constantly offended by them if we know in retrospect they're oftentimes okay or good? Well, I think uh, we want to we want to show that we can fix it when we get a roadblock in the way. Uh, oftentimes we think, well, God's called us to do X, Y, Z, and this yeah. roadblock came. And so I'm going to push through that in order to honor the Lord. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, I think that a lot of times we want the best for maybe our kids or our ministry or our church or our business or whatever. And so if we're the leader, it's our job to fix it. And, um, and you know, as dads, uh, our job is to fix stuff. That's what we do. And when we can't <laughs> fix it, we get really frustrated. So I think there's just something in us that pushes, wants us to push harder when the roadblock come, but my call is when the roadblocks come, let's slow down a little bit and let's not push yet. Let's learn from it and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Now at Bellhaven, you are the, the only, I think, well, it's an extraordinarily accomplishment what you guys have there. You've got national accreditation for all four primary arts disciplines, dance, theater, music, and visual arts. All right. There's not, is, are you the only place in America that has that? Uh, there are 32 schools in the country that have it, and we're the only Christian college that's achieved that. And we're, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. We work at the at the very highest levels in the arts, and I've got artists from all around the country who come here and for our programs. Yeah, so I would love for you to tell a little bit of your story of how the uh, the university developed their their arts uh, program and their and their arts facility. It's a great story filled with roadblocks. 
Well, it is filled with a bunch of roadblocks. And, uh, you know, first of all, if you're a university president, you don't set out to, to, to achieve in the arts because it's expensive and usually the faculty are, are really strange and different and the students are angular and all that kind of stuff <laughs> is, is kind of the, the watchword on the street among the college president club. But, you know, we have found that God picked us to do something in the arts that nobody else has done. And um, and and I found those things not true, except that it's expensive. It really is expensive. Uh, but, um, you know, what I found is that as we just kind of followed God's opportunities as he opened doors for us, we didn't plan it. It just kind of came. And, and we kept walking through them until we got to the point of, of some pretty significant roadblocks. And I thought, well, maybe this is the end of the journey. And one of those was really when we out grew our facility and um, what we were doing were kind of makeshift in a lot of places and we and it was working and we were making it go but if we were really going to grow and move to the highest levels we were going to be stuck and so got the architects together and they come up with this plan you know and they, and they come out with this thing I think it was like 25 million dollars for phase one of course nobody ever builds phase two every church in the world builds phase one but they don't build phase two and so I knew phase two was never going to happen so so what do we do I I was really discouraged, and I and I thought, well, maybe this is it, you know. And um, I kept driving by this church on the way home from the campus every day, and I really never paid attention to it. And one day, I don't know, and I don't operate this way. I, I'm usually much more you know, careful and, and kind of structured in my, in my faith and how it gets expressed. But I just drove into the, into this parking lot of this church, never been there before, uh, which is just a block or two from the campus. And I w- walked into the pastor's office and I said, I want to buy your church. <laughs> and he said, well, it's not for sale. And I said, well, I haven't got any money. So, you know, we're starting together. We're okay. And he said, well, would you like to see it before you buy it? <laughs> and uh, he gave me a tour. It was the most beautifully designed collegiate arts center I'd ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And long story short, God opened up door after door after door, and we eventually bought that with the renovations, paid about 10 cents on the dollar for what it would have cost to build a brand same wow. thing for new and God just opened that up. Yeah. And so, you know, and then we had others of that with another building that came with a remarkable game. God will work through these roadblocks, but I think the challenge is what we do is we want to push, we want to force it to happen. And instead we'll back off a little bit and give God room to work. I've just seen over and over and over how he'll do that. Yeah. Dr. Roger Parrott is my guest. And Roger, you said something just a few minutes ago that you said casually, we weren't really planning anything, and I have to let my audience uh, know again that your plan is not to have a plan. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I'm now saying— that I wrote a book on the topic, I really better not have a plan. Yeah. There is no long-range plan for our university. We live by opportunities. We capture opportunities. We want to be a sailboat prepared to catch the wind of God and go where God's wind takes us in a powerboat that goes where we think God wants us to go and completely can ignore the wind. We want to be where God wants us to be, and it really is a fun way to live. Yeah. Now, your book is called Opportunity Leadership. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Opportunity so. leadership. Stop planning and start getting results. Yeah. Well, Chris, I love that title, and it's uh, attractive for a lot of reasons. And it really, it, what you're saying is, let's not miss what God is doing. I mean, let's be intentional. Let's be purposeful. Let's have a vision. Let's have goals. But let's not miss uh, what God might be uh, putting right in front of us. 
Exactly. Yeah. And and sometimes God opens these doors and you just know it's right to walk through. But sometimes, again, back to roadblocks, when he closes the doors, he's also speaking to us. And let's not miss that. And so instead of going banging on the door and pushing through like we tend to do because we, we think we're going where we God wants us to go, these are great times for reflection and really examining key questions of our mission, uh, of our of our team. Uh, maybe are, are we getting too proud and, and God's not getting the glory. And when that happens, God will put up a roadblock and stop us. Um, you know, I, I think there's also the whole question of maybe what we're doing has been done for a season. And, and that's what I kind of wondered in that arts uh, example. Maybe that was for a season, but God was going to direct us someplace else. And maybe we just have to wait. So, you know, when I hit a roadblock in this world of capturing opportunities, I mean, when they when the good ones come, yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, well, God's all in it, and that's great. But when the tough ones come and the roadblocks come, my first question always is, what's God trying to say to us? Let's figure that out. Let's wait and listen and pray and be thoughtful about what's God really trying to tell us. And I found that we grow and we expand and we do more good things when we're sensitive to the roadblocks than when we just capture these wide open doors that come to us. Ooh, I really like that. I'm going to have to ponder that, which is a good thing. So uh, you also say, and you suggest that we first need to examine what success is, right? Well, we do, and, and I and I think we got a problem in the church with that. I think we've we've kind of uh, taken on the world's um, uh, uh, measures of success, yeah. and and that's dangerous. And we're seeing some pretty high profile uh, pastors and other leaders kind of you know bite the dust because they they got pretty full of their success on the way the world measures. That's not how God measures it. But um, you know, I, I think we've got to think differently. And of course. Solomon is a is a great example of that. I mean, Solomon was a builder. I mean, you know, I built a lot of buildings, but he built everything. And right. he built all this stuff and, you know, the temple and he built twenty years parts. building the temple. Oh yeah. 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 Twenty years on the one on this temple and then he built everything that goes with it. It just wasn't sitting there by itself and he parks and vineyards and and, and supply all the supply centers, all this stuff and you know and 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 he built everything he wanted but but his story didn't have a happy ending because he wasn't looking at success through God's eyes. Everybody I'm sure around him was absolutely amazed. But that's not what God measures. And so I think when we do hit these roadblocks, that's a really good time to examine, you know, what are we holding up as success? Yeah. And uh, what are we, what are we really, what, what's really important to us? Is it what everybody else thinks or is it what God really measures? I, I just been studying the Beatitudes lately. And when you study what God really blesses in order of what he values, you know, that's a whole lot different than what most of us spend our time at. Mm-hmm. If roadblocks uh, trigger high anxiety levels in you, don't budge, because I'm going to continue our discussion with Dr. Roger Parrott as we're talking about roadblocks. We'll be right back with him in just a minute. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio change the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. 
Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. I'm back with Dr. Roger Parrott, and we're talking about roadblocks. Now, they are a gift from God, if you can see it that way. And and if you've got a lot of anxiety from roadblocks, and that just triggers a lot in you, uh, Roger would suggest maybe you need to lighten your grip. Would you say more about that? Yeah, because everybody gets anxious when you hit roadblocks. I mean, oh, when things yeah. are going well, we're all relaxed, and we God's in control, and, and yep. we're all thrilled. And then we hit a roadblock, and then we feel like it's our responsibility to fix it. And so we tense up, and we push harder, and we get more more aggressive, and all the stuff that goes. That's just a natural reaction, mm-hmm. and it's the it's. But the, the solution is counterintuitive. We need during these times when we feel like we need to tense up for roadblocks to lessen our grip, to lighten that grip. That's the key to the success. Because when we get tight, we make it worse. We don't make it better. God's got this. Let's trust him to have this. And 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 but it's not easy to do, you know. You know, one of the good things about the pandemic is it really helped my golf game because for a while I couldn't you couldn't be with anybody and I could go play golf by myself outside. And so I started really studying golf in more detail and, and and really the key, and, and the golfers who are listening will understand this, the key to a good golf swing is a light grip. They say hold it like you're holding an egg in your hand. It's not like a baseball bat or a tennis racket. You hold the thing really light, and if your, ten, your grip tightens up, you'll hit a bad shot every single mm-hmm. time. And I think the same thing is true in leadership. Our grip tightens up. We get more aggressive with people. We get short with people. We push harder to try to get a solution faster. All kinds of bad things happen. So so I think when we get to those moments where this tension comes, you, you got to do two things. One is you got to purposely think about lightening your grip. Uh, you know, I mean, when I get up to the tee box, I got to think, don't hold this thing too tight. And <laughs> and after a while, that becomes natural and you do it naturally. But until you tell that yourself that the first thousand times, you're going to grab that thing, the, the grip of the club as hard as you can. And so you've got to train yourself in these times of high motion when the roadblocks come to lighten the grip. And the second thing is to, 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 to wait until the emotions are out of it. And, you know, I, 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 as I work with my team and, and for my own work, I mean, stuff comes to us and we get frustrated and we get upset. And especially in this time of, you know, instant communication with email it's real easy to fire off a hot email. And I always tell my team, don't send anything until your emotions are out of it. And I say that to myself, don't send it until your emotions are out of it. And sometimes that means you leave it in the inbox for an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year, whatever it takes. Because as long as the emotion's in there, you're going to be tense and it's not going to bring about a good solution to a roadblock. So, you know, those are not easy to do. They take time. They take practice. You've got to kind of train yourself to do it. And But over time, you can learn to do that. And, and for those who are listening who are parents, I'd say the same thing. You know, when, when there's a 
catastrophe at home when a roadblock comes, there's a tendency to get aggressive, to get to get louder, to get you know tense with the kids or your spouse or whatever. No, that's the time to purposely let go, back off, walk away from it for a bit until that emotion gets out, and then you can get a good solution. It doesn't have. There's very little things in leadership or parenting or in life that have to be taken care of immediately. We can usually back off and give it a little time so we can handle it better than than we would if we're under that kind of anxiety. Roger, I want to go back to your golf analogy just for a minute because you might find this hard to believe, but I was once in the long grass playing golf. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that never happened. of course, your instinct is to swing harder because you got to get out of tall mm-hmm. grass. And then one day a friend of mine who was a scratch golfer said, hey, just re- remember to swing. Hold the club light, swing easy, let the club head do the work. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. oh my, that changed my game. Then I, I oh, shot seventy eight and I did oh, I did I know I did worse on the back nine, but um <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. But uh it is. It's such a simple principle that's sometimes hard to execute. It's it's a real simple principle that's really hard yeah, to do. Exactly. Re- really hard to do. Yeah. And it only comes by training yourself to do it over time. And that's the challenge in leadership, that every time we tense up and do it, we make a mistake, usually make it worse, and then and then we tense up even more. Yeah. So you gotta you gotta stay at it. But just as in golf and and that's a great example, especially in the long grass, you just wanna slug it. Oh totally. And, and yeah. you're you're never gonna get there when you do. Yeah. I mean you're just gonna hit it into the go long grass on the other side of the fairway. That's very true. Which brings me to my next point, Roger Parrott, and that is uh, the need to embrace complexity. Yeah. You know, I think that's a critical part of this whole dealing with roadblocks because usually roadblocks are really complex. Things come and they get all jumbled up. And and as leaders, what we tend to want to do is simplify, push through it fast, get it behind us and and move on. And and that it doesn't always work that way. There's a there's a complexity to people, there are complexities mm-hmm. to problems. Uh issues are not always as simple as, you know, we want to believe they are, as consultants tell us they are. And sometimes you just got to embrace the complexity and let it work toward a solution rather than you forcing it. And and you know an example that that's been meaningful to me that that I kind of developed as I work with people to help them to understand this is I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and and during the time and I don't know if they still do it I've been out there a long time but they used to cut the logs up in the forest and then they'd take them down to the river and then they would lash them together and they'd float them down the river and it was a lot cheaper than putting them in trucks and everything and so they would take these huge uh, bunches of logs and float them down the river well every once in a while they got hung up and and created a log jam and they you know and then more logs would come on top of it and it'd jam up and jam up and and then nothing was moving and obviously you know it's significant so when you got a log jam as a lumberman you can do three things one is you can you can go out there with a big huge steel pole and i've seen them do it and if you're really skilled you can break up that log jam but there's a lot better chance of you getting hurt than there is breaking up the log jam. Mm. And in leadership, the same thing is true. We can go in there with our muscle or our power or our stature and try to break it up, but there's a chance we're going to get hurt in the process. So that's one option. Second option is 
ways to do this in the Pacific Northwest. And as a young guy growing up, we love this. They put dynamite in it and blow it up. Mm. And, you know, it's the only way they can move it. And so they stick it in there, and, and there's huge explosion. Well, the challenge with that is you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but, boy, I've seen too many leaders go in when they hit a log jam, and they just want to blow it up just to get it moving. And so they go in there, and they put in the dynamite, and then they usually got a worse mess to deal with. The third option is when you hit a log jam, you can wait. And what happens when you wait is those logs rub against each other, and the current moves, and things slowly change, and eventually it will usually break up on its own if you give it time. And as leaders, that's what I encourage. Give it time. Let it rub against itself. Don't try to deal with all the complexity and, and blow it up or go in and get yourself hurt. Give it some time, and it's amazing how those things will work out. Uh, and uh, it's a, it, it really takes the pressure off when we can do that. Yeah, such wisdom, Dr. Roger mm. Parrott. Thank you. Um, let's talk just in the remaining couple minutes we have left, the, the, the counterweights to the fight, flight, or freeze instinct that are triggered when we hit roadblocks. Yeah, you know, when they come, I mean, that's what we want to do. We're going to fight them uh, or we're going to run from them. You know, I mean, it's it's built into who we are and our and our typical DNA of you know of, of how to handle this. And and instead, we got to realize this is God's deal. This is the Lord's uh, work that we're doing. This is the Lord's life in us. Let's let Him work. Let's allow Him to shine through this thing. And you know, when you do, then when it does clear up, and it almost always does, God gets the honor and God gets the glory. And so instead of fighting or, or running or just freezing, you know, just just put it into the hands of God. And there have been times, and, and literally, Bill, where I'll sit in my office and I'm dealing with a problem, and I literally take my palms and I hold them out and I say, Lord, you take it, and I turn mm-hmm. my palm over and I just physically have to go through that process of letting it go. And when you do, there's a freedom in that and a trust in that. And, and again, I, I mean, I literally do that. And, and it's not my normal pattern of spiritual expression. But to me, that's important because I've got to have a moment. I let it go. And when we do, God can go to work. Mm-hmm. Roger, speak a, uh, a minute of truth or less into a person who really much prefers tidy boxes. And if I don't have a tidy box, I'm a mess. Well, it's not going to get tidy. <laughs> I said be it's encouraging, Roger. Happen. You know, there's the OCD of, of our lives where we want to order everything, and there's also also the OCD of leadership where you want everything to be in order. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And so understand it's never going to happen. And so you, you deal with the boundaries of how what you can control. You deal with the overarching issues of what's around us. But to try to force things to all line up and be perfect, what's going to happen as a leader, you're eventually going to get either run out or fired because – that's not how organizations work. They're dynamic. They're complex. They're filled with people with all kinds of perspectives and styles and and interests. And there's no way to make it all line up. If you do, you're not going to have a very dynamic organization. And leaders who have tried that, and many, 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 many have, have always failed. No. Thank you so much, Roger, for being on the show. Always a delight to have you on.
Great treat. Yep. Thanks so much, Dr. Uh, Roger Parrott's been my guest. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk economics with Dr. Ann Bradley. I think uh, so many appreciate Ann's perspective. She is so wise. We're going to talk about are we in a recession or not? I think that's a question that all economists are hearing right now, and I can't wait to hear her answer. That's next. might just be me, but the more I have guests on the show, the less introduction I usually have for them. So I'm kind of at the point now where it's, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ann Rathbone-Bradley. Ann, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Bill. How are you? It's I'm, great to be back. I'm good. You know, I think your bio has changed enough times that I'm not entirely sure what the most accurate one is or the most up-to-date one. I know you were uh, previously um, at the, as the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And of course, you're right. a visiting professor at George Mason University. I'm not sure what else, but... Phil- I also work at the Fund for American Studies. So you're right. I have a lot of hats. You have a lot of hats. to keep up with, yeah, even so. for myself. Okay, good. So it's not just me. <laughs> But I've it's been, not just you. I have been wanting to get you back on the program for a while, so I'm glad you're here. So thank you again for making time for us. Let's start with basic economic definitions. Are we in a recession? Oh, my goodness. I knew you were going to leave. I had to go there. You had to go there. I did. It's, it's funny because I think that there's a lot of semantics going on, playing game, those types of games, and, of course, they say that politics is theater, and I think that this is an example of that. Um, and as you know, uh, President Biden has been kind of sidestepping this um, this definition of, of a recession. So a recession is typically um, by the NBER, which is the National Bureau of Economic Research. So they're kind of the go-to for how we can clarify and understand whether we're in a recession. And so they define it as two consecutive quarters of a decline in output, or what we call GDP, gross domestic product. And so we have experienced two quarters of a decline. Now, I will say that obviously no president wants to champion or admit that there's a recession um, under their you know, tenure, because that's not good for elections, it's not going to be good for midterms, and really just generally people are having a hard time right now. And so um, presidents don't want to have that um, put on their shoulders or, or take responsibility for it, whether it's their fault or not. I will say, I think that this is a little bit complicated. It's more complicated than you hear if you're kind of following the pundits or, or, or reading about this on Twitter. It's actually in the middle of the beginning of a recession, not always as easy to understand if you're in it, if that makes sense, because we're living in real time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that we would look at in addition to a decline in output. So we would look at real manufacturing, industrial production, employment, um, these real personal income. So there's a variety of things 
that economists are look at. So I uh, are looking at to say, you know, whether we're in a recession or not. So I will say that I think what Biden is doing by saying, well, you know, how do we define a recession or let's redefine the term is political theater. But I do think reasonable economists and people can disagree about what is going on right now. It's a complicated time. And I think, you know, you and I have been talking about this now for so long. Mm -hmm. There's many factors at play. Yeah, we have. And I know people are experiencing life financially on a very retail level. The price of gas and groceries and various bills and just their lifestyle trying to uh, make ends meet is causing all kinds of problems for people and families. So if they hear there's a recession or not, that doesn't really seem to matter much. It's what happens at their uh, when their paycheck comes and do they have enough to cover their family for the month? Right. So you don't need an expert to tell you that economically you're more miserable than you were before. Exactly. Right? We don't need we don't need <laughs> experts to tell us that because we can feel it. And I really think that that is an important point. Um, you know, there were uh, people the recent survey was done in June, I believe, and uh, over 50 percent of the respondents said that we were in a recession. And so, you know, whether those people who answered that question actually technically understand recessions, I think doesn't matter as much as what you're saying, which is people know that life is more expensive right now than it was two years ago. It's funny to me, Bill, because you and I, for the past two years, have talked about the misery index more than I've talked about it my entire life. Interesting. And I'm an economist. Yeah. (laughs) But we didn't, you know, really talk about this that much. So the misery index combines in the inflation rate with the current unemployment rate. And in 2019, it was at an all-time low of around 5%. The misery index today is 12.6%. In the 70s, it topped 20%. So we're not at the worst Mm -hmm. we've ever been, but we are in concerning times. And so again, you know, people like you're saying, you understand that even if your wages are going up a little bit, you're getting cost of living adjustments and things like this. Inflation is outpacing the wage gains. And so this means that people have to make tough decisions when they're at the grocery store, when they're deciding what errands they're going to run, because that requires putting gas in your car, whether you're going to be able to go on vacation or whether you just have to do away with vacations altogether. So these are hard decisions that families are facing right now. Yeah. And when they talk about the labor market remaining strong, uh, I always think, Mm -hmm. well, that's really good news. But how come there's so many businesses that have so much trouble getting employees? They've got reduced hours, reduced service. When are these employees coming back onto the workforce? This is a good question. And I think this was what really marks a different time uh, when we look at the market now, uh, the labor and employment and um, just the overall market conditions from the 1970s. So there's lots of people who are comparing the time that we live in now to the 1970s. And certainly there are some comparisons. But in the 1970s, um, unemployment was a huge problem. And unemployment is not a big problem right now. As you mentioned, I mean, certainly the labor market faced this kind of boomerang Um, during COVID because the lockdowns forced people at home. Many people lost their jobs. And so unemployment in mid-2020, I think April of 2020, was something like 14.7%. In February of 2020, it was like 3.5%. So that's a huge change, and then it rebounded. And so um, the most recent numbers from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics just 
showed us that we added almost 600,000 jobs. And so the labor market is doing well right now. And so that is also what is causing reasonable people to disagree about whether we're in a recession. Now, I will say one thing. Labor tends to be a lagging indicator of a recession, meaning those changes come a little bit later because that's the last thing. Think about running a restaurant or running a grocery store where you need people, you need human beings. And so you're going to make all the substitutions you can before you lay people off because, you know, right now, if you need somebody to man a cash register, you need someone to do that. And so that's one of the last things to go. And so I think economists are really going to be looking at the labor market over the next couple months to see what happens. Um, but, you know, we also have seen that COVID and the lockdowns, and I think the, you're getting to this in your question, really just changed the way we worked. It changed who worked. We saw lots of people um, above the age of, you know, 55 quitting and mm-hmm. just permanently leaving the labor market. So maybe they were going to work for five more years, but the lockdowns made them say, eh, I can afford to retire. I'm just not going to go back to work. And so um, it's not all doom and gloom, but it's something we need to watch very carefully to see what's going to happen next. And I think that this will then determine what we need to do about it. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. You already answered it. As the population ages and during COVID, there were more people that said, I think that's enough. I'm going to retire now. Mm-hmm. And so we, we are dealing with uh, fewer people in the workforce. And But when you think about the jobs at the grocery store and the convenience store and uh, stores saying we're closing normally at five, but you know, on now we're closing at two because we just don't have the, the manpower. I, I think, boy, there's a lot of people out there that uh, can go work in those jobs, but they don't seem to be uh, taking them. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of that is related to the fiscal policy that we pursued during COVID, which was sending out checks, right? So we had stimulus check effects. Um, but we also see that people are just swapping jobs. So they're, they're advancing in their career. So if you used to work, say, at a Starbucks in an airport or, you know, something like that, uh, and you left that job, you're actually switching into a better job. And again, that's good, good yeah. right? That's a good thing for people. But to your point, we need to replace these jobs. One of the things that we're going to see, now this is going to take longer to play out, is that machines and technology are already replacing lots of what human beings do. And in many cases, we say that's a good thing, right? That's actually a sign of increased productivity and progress. And so if, you know, you're, you're seeing things like Amazon has cashierless grocery stores. I've never actually been in one. But, you know, I think the only people employed at those types of grocery stores are stocking Mm -hmm. and you have probably managers, right? But you don't have somebody checking you out because it's all done on your phone or your device. And so that is the wave of the future. Um, I'm already seeing at kind of um, fast food places and drive-throughs, there's a lot more technological steps that come before I interact with the human. Yeah. The human's kind of at the end, right? They hand you the food. Um, <laughs> but before that, you're dealing with iPads and computers. And that's a good thing in the sense that um, it means that that establishment can pay lower overhead to run their business and things like this. But, it, you know, this job economy, this employment, these conditions that we're facing could accelerate the pace at which technology replaces humans because it has to, to your point, if people aren't taking those jobs, the person who runs the Starbucks or, you know, the Chick-fil-A has to do something about it. So they might just 
hasten the pace of technology replacing what people did. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the grocery store and you've got five or six items, do you gravitate towards the self-checkout lane or do you go through and have a cashier check you out or do you not have that option? Every single time I go to (laughs) self-checkout. It's a funny thing I've noticed in my own shopping habits over the past five years, I'd say. And why is that? I feel like it's faster, even though sometimes it's not. And you know what happened, which is funny? Um, but these are the minutia of how these decisions work. Now I know the code, the codes for some of the produce okay. that I buy all the time. So, yeah, for example, bananas are 4011. <laughs> all right. So that <laughs> does information, right? Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask you. The first time you do it, you, you don't know it, and so it takes longer because you have to look up all the codes. But then when you do it more than once and you remember the codes, it feels faster to me. Now, mm. if you have a problem in the self-checkout line, that's when I think it's you get slowed down because then you have to wait for someone right. to come to you. So I think it depends on where you're shopping. Yeah. You're doing. Do you think the trend is that there will be more self-checkouts in stores going uh, forward? I do. Okay. And I think even more than that, I think this concept that Amazon has where they're going to be, you're going to scan things on your phone wow. in your cart, and then it's going to take it out of a credit card. It's, fascinating to me so i think that's yeah so i think that's where we're headed um and you know i think that was inevitable it was already happening but labor market disruptions can change the pace at which this occurs Mm -hmm. and i think that's what we're going to see yeah so Anne, let me ask you this when you're doing self-checkout and they have that person at the stand kind of um, being the hall monitor, do you think they're there to quickly assist shoppers with problems or to clean up after they leave, wipe things down, or do you think they're watching for people's honesty? That's a great question. I suspect it's a little bit, I think the first and the second, or the, the first and the third thing. I'm not sure how much it is to clean up, although, okay. um, you know, in height, in height of COVID, we were wiping everything down in between customers. I don't in my own personal experience, I don't see them doing that as much anymore. So I think it's let's problem solve um, and let's watch because yeah. I do think it would be easier to not scan things. Now, the question is, you know, are, are, I think there's cameras everywhere in these stores. So sure. I don't know if you could do that without getting caught. I certainly wouldn't risk it. Yeah. But, um, you know, when you go to Costco or any of these big box stores, it's always fascinating to me because they've always been doing this, regardless of whether you self-checkout. They check your receipt and they're trained to very quickly count the items in your cart when you're walking out the door. And I think it's for... Uh, they claim, I, I read an article about this recently, they claim that it's because they want to make sure that the cashier didn't charge you incorrectly. But I think it's also probably making sure that people aren't taking more than what they're, they, they've paid for. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We're going to take a break and we come back. I've got some questions about the Federal Reserve with uh, Ann. We'll take a uh, break. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com.
We are talking your money and your economy with Dr. Ann Bradley. She's an economist, professor, author, great thinker, and all around nice person. And let's talk about the Federal Reserve. They've got like, what, two consecutive 0.75 percentage point increases this summer. Is that something you support? Is that a good thing? Look, I, I do think that this is necessary, although painful. And my own opinion on this, uh, and I, I guess like with everything else, economists are divided. And I, I think reasonable people can disagree, although I would take a tougher stance on this, which is to say this is too late in the game. Um, they should have done something much, much earlier. Um, and so I think that this is the painful part of getting the economy back where we need it to be. And to kind of give a little bit of a backstory here, the Federal Reserve has what we often refer to as a dual mandate, so kind of two jobs. And those that dual mandate is to maximize employment and stabilize prices. And so there's a variety of ways that they do that. Um, including, you know, kind of, um, and through the Federal Open Market Committee, they set monetary policy. And so in the simplest way to think about what they need to do is to ensure that money supply matches money demand. And so you can think about the demand for pizza or the demand for soda or the demand for dishwashers, whatever. Any kind of market, you have a downward sloping demand curve and an upward sloping supply curve. And at the equilibrium point, they interact and they give you a price and a quantity. And monetary policy is really not that different. So if the Fed – and so none of this is easy, by the way. It's it's not simple. Um, And that's why the Fed sets targets for things like inflation, which their target for inflation is 2%. Right now we're at 9.1%, which is why you're seeing those – deep rate increases. They're trying to slow down the economy. But I think the problem is that, so I agree that this needs to occur, but I think this needed to occur a long time ago. I also think the Fed is overstepping its dual mandate. And so um, they have been engaging in lots of kind of um, different types of, of, of activities over the years. But I think this has really been increased since the Great Recession. So since 2007, the Fed has broadened the scope of its activities, and I think um, that is dangerous. And so we want the Fed to be an independent central bank, not at all engaging in fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is what the legislature should do. And I think when we blur the lines between these institutions, we actually violate what the Constitution, um, you know, uh, set about for us in terms of this concept of federalism. And so obviously the Federal Reserve doesn't come till 1913, way after the Constitution is written. But the point is that this separation of powers is really important to the concept of how we govern this country. And I think that those blurred lines are very dangerous. So that's a long-winded answer, probably answers more than you asked. But Mm -hmm. I think that's where I see some of the problems right now. But yes, we have to have these rate point hikes right now because we have to get inflation under control. That's the most important thing I think uh, that we need to be working on right now. That's the job of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. So, and the Senate uh, passed a bill recently, obviously spending hundreds of billions on healthcare programs and climate, and it's going to be raising taxes um, on yes. big profitable companies. And 
What is that going to do to our economy? How will that affect uh, the taxpayer like you and me? Yeah, well, gosh, first, I think this is uh, uh, inappropriately named. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And again, that, I think that that confuse it's confusing because it this act this bill has nothing to do with the fed <laughs> and the fed is, is kind of we want them dealing with inflation so this has to do with fiscal policy um and so as you said this is something like 740 billion dollars there's lots of different components of what's going on in this inflation reduction act which is going to go to the house um including an electric car tax credit so there's a lot in this uh, Inflation Reduction Act that's dealing with climate, with energy, with health care. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll need to see what happens. Uh, but uh, one of the things that's in there is um, that Medicare, um, that Congress will have the power to negotiate prices for Medicare. Um, we're getting 80,000 new IRS agents. I actually think this is bad news. Um, and lots of kind of uh, money, $400 billion of that $740 billion for different climate and energy policies. Um, one of Biden's campaign promises was to reduce emissions, and so this is very aggressively attempting to do that. Um, I'm not sure it's going to reduce inflation, so I think yeah. it's poorly named, right? Um, so <laughs> I think that's confusing to people, but it's 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 appropriately named if you're trying to tap into what you know people are worried about. Again, I think that gets back to kind of politics being theater. Um, now, one of, you know, kind of what the Democrats are talking about right now is that this this should pay for itself because um, there's going to be new taxes, including a minimum 15% corporate tax. And so th the promise is that it's going to be okay, this is going to reduce the deficit because the bill is going to pay for itself. The questions that I have about this particular spending bill, which I have, you know, you, I, I tell my students all the time we have to pack up our principles and take them to our policy fights, right? So we're just always going to use basic economics to try to address the questions. And the question that I have is, are these the right activities to get the job done? And I'm not sure that they are. In other words, I agree that health care is, is flawed um, as a set of institutions in the United States, it costs way more than it should. And disproportionately, the poor get the downside of that. They don't have the access, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to fix that. I don't think that's a very controversial point. What I do not understand as an economist, not, and I'm not even talking ideologically, just when I see things like that, the economist in me says, okay, what's the constraint? Why? Is healthcare so expensive? Why are pharmaceutical drugs drugs prohibitive? Why don't we have as much innovation as we want? And so the economist says, okay, are there demand constraints or are there supply constraints? And in this case, healthcare, big pharma, you know, big pharma as we call it, this kind of operates like a cartel. And so economists really hate cartels, right? Because you have a small number of suppliers, they can collude, they can keep out new entrants, and that's exactly what the regulations have done so far. So, you know, saying we're going to mandate prescription drug prices sounds good on paper. But at the end of the day, what you need is an increase in supply. You need more people producing more drugs, competing against each other to offer consumers the things they need to save their lives. 
and to increase their well-being and their quality of life, especially, as you mentioned earlier, we have an aging population, and that will continue to be the case. And so this is an ongoing problem. We need lots of R&D. We need lots of innovation. And this is not the way. I don't think this is the way. I think the way is freeing up the healthcare market. I would say the same for climate change. I think with climate change, this gets just people get ideologically worked up before we can even have a productive conversation. So some people say climate change is not a problem at all. Other people say climate change is such a problem that we're all going to be dead in 10 years. I don't think either one of those positions is true. I think we have to say, look, you know, as there's more people on the planet, And as those people get richer, two things that are still occurring simultaneously, by the way, then we have to worry about the depletion of precious resources. So what's the best way to do that? Innovation, entrepreneurship, right? That's what we need. And so I'm just not sure setting arbitrary quotas for emissions reduction, solar panel, wind turbine manufacturing subsidies, I think this disfavors special interest groups rather than actually you know, uh, spurring innovation, which is what we need. So Biden said, you know, this is a win for American families over special interest groups. And I'm I'm not sure he's right about that. I I think that this is going to embolden special interest groups that are in those different sectors. And I think, you know, what we need to do is delegitimize those special interest groups and actually get some more innovation. And the way we get that is by freeing up these markets. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's been great. I always appreciate having you on. And thank you for taking time. And I hope your summer is going well. It's already uh, getting to be almost mid-August. So I hope you've had a nice summer. Thanks, Bill. Same to you. Yeah. And I look forward to talking again soon. Thank you so much. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest. And that's our, our show for the day. I am so glad that we spent this time together. And if you're just tuning in on a podcast later in the evening, welcome. Glad to have you listen now or whenever you can. You can always go to MyFaithRadio.com. And check it out, and you can also go to your your app store and get the Faith Radio app. Love to have it on your smartphone. I will see you tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it as well. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.